0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is our second episode in the tale of French Florida. If you missed the first episode, that's fine because this is a completely different story with some of the same characters. So, to recap part one, the Huguenots, who were French Protestants, mostly Calvinists, were swelling in numbers in France. But at the same time, that brought down authorities upon them as they grew to be a larger and larger threat to the existing power structure. Because of this, the Huguenots, sensing a series of civil wars just on the horizon, were looking for ways to fit inside of the French Empire and be useful to those powers that be, and yet be slightly outside of their grasp. In a sense, they were looking for safety, some of them anonymity, and for many, a fresh start. That brought Admiral Gaspard de Coligny into our story Admiral of the French Navy he was perhaps the most powerful Huguenot in all of France it was under his command that these Huguenot colonies would be planted in territories the Spanish otherwise considered theirs hence why the French now end up in Florida now the attitude of the French was hey we landed on North America too maybe Florida is part of New France the Spanish had yet to create any permanent settlements there The natives seemed openly hostile to the Spanish, and there really was no Verrazano Sea in the middle of North America, nicely separating New Spain from New France. So maybe New France just rolled straight through the rest of the continent to all parts south. Caligny, being too high-ranked, too much of a noble to go out and do any of the work himself, had lesser nobles under him found these colonies. The one we focused on in our first episode was Charles Ford. Now, the people he put in charge of that were Jean Robot, a lesser noble who was a decorated Navy man, tons of experience, and just under him, René Laudanere, an even lesser noble with less experience and less decoration. These men originally planned to explore the coastline of what was Spanish Florida, which at this time was much larger than what you would think of as the American state of Florida today. It was probably much of the southeast. This first party of exploration found the area so pleasant. Of course, they were there in the spring, right? They found the area so pleasant. They said, let's just start building the fort now. They built the fort, Charles Fort, and then the noblemen went back home for resupply. Now, they didn't plan on making this fort, so they didn't bring provisions. They didn't bring seeds, farming implements, nothing like that. They they didn't bring women. They didn't bring children. Except for a few cabin boys. This was not meant to be a colony. It was an accidental colony built on enthusiasm. And enthusiasm can fill the heart, but it can't fill the stomach. And the men at Charles Fort, having lost favor with the natives who provided them food, began to starve. Tempers grew. There was a mutiny. They slew their leader. And without resupply, which should have come after months and months of waiting they decide to make a makeshift ship out of moss and planks and their clothing and their bedsheets and find their way back to France somehow. They had good winds. Then the winds died down. The food ran out. The water ran out. They resorted to cannibalism. And that just limped them along the coast of Europe where they were saved by some English sailors who found them so decrepit, so run down, that they were resigned to lay down and die. And where were our noblemen? Why did they not resupply the fledgling small fort? Well, it turns out, our first French civil war of religion broke out. Coligny rallying his forces, employing Robeau and Laudanere. As the Huguenots, in cities where they were large enough in number, created committees for their own safety and took over small areas, essentially creating city-states, uh, fighting a war against the fervent Catholics who chose to battle them. Rabot, on the losing end of one of these city-states, end up escaping to England. And While in England, under Elizabeth I, he tries to swindle her. He tries to swindle her out of a fleet to go resupply Charlesfort. But she got wise to this and locked him in the Tower of London. That very long synopsis brings us up to our next chapter. With the first war of religion over, Admiral Gaspard de Coligny would now have time to work on his passion projects, a French Florida. But his top dog, Jean Rabot, is still locked in the Tower of London. He will have to depend on the less experienced, less talented, and far less noble, René Laudanere. A risky proposition, But we're now in the year 1564. And who dies in the year 1564? John Calvin. The founder of Calvinism. The man who breathed new life into Protestantism in general. Was at its lowest ebb. Before John Calvin came onto the scene. Now Calvin is gone. The Huguenots are leaderless. And the Protestant cause looks dimmer than ever. But the Huguenots were hardy. If not desperate. And there were volunteers to be found. For this second escapade into Florida. Actually, four guys from the first expedition that ended so terribly agreed to go on to the second. And so they actually had guides and a little bit of experience. This time they brought a few women. They had mostly Huguenots, but some Catholics. Some people they labeled infidels, which probably also included African slaves. None of these stories are clean. None of these stories are modern. You're not going to find a modern hero in them. There's going to be slavery. I'm sorry to tell you. So there were some African slaves on board. They took three ships, about 300 colonists total. And we're going to get most of our information from three dudes that left accounts. Rene de Laudaner, we talked about. We have his account. A artist named Jacques Lemoyne, who is now famous for his very early depictions of Native Americans in very flattering ways. Uh, very human ways. He didn't depict them as savages or monsters, as many did before this point in time, especially in points south in the Caribbean, where all they did is really talk about their cannibalism. And an old carpenter named Nick Lachelleau also left us an account. So those three men are going to paint the picture of the second attempt to settle Florida by the French, centered around their fort, Fort Caroline. When the French landed right before summer in the year 1564, their reaction to the beauty of this land was very similar to the last expedition. Lachalot the Carpenter wrote, Florida promised an abundance of all that man might desire in the world, for that country had received a singular favor from heaven. Another account of this same experience came from a young man writing home to his father, and in this letter he refers to Florida multiple times as part of New France. Clearly in the mind of these French colonists, Florida was now within the domain of the French Empire and no longer in the domain of the Spanish. We'll come to find out the Spanish believed the exact opposite. And the natives took neither opinion and believed that they were possessors of the land. And now let's consider our artist, Lemoyne, and the things he would begin seeing. As a visual artist, as a painter, everything in Florida would be utterly foreign to his experience. And beyond the landscapes and the water and the plants and the animals... He was most interested in the natives. He describes coming to one of these white marble pillars that the French planted previously to denote French possession. And what he saw around it were a large group of natives dancing and singing and throwing flowers upon the marble column. From Moyne's eyes, they were worshipping the column. What they were actually doing is God knows. Who knows? Who knows what they're actually doing? But from this young man's eyes, they found the colon to be some sort of miraculous stone. And when the French landed in Laudonair stepped off the boat, he met a native, a native he seems to have known from his previous expedition, a great leader of a Tamukan chieftain named Satira or Satirira or Satirba. The sources vary, and so my pronunciation will too. But we have to give the French some credit here. Because the English or the Dutch, when they would meet a native leader, would just give them a name they were more familiar with. The Dutch might choose Hendrik, and the English might choose Henry, something like that. The French at least tried to address people by their actual names. It's likely that Chief Satira saw the French coming, had advance warning of some type, and so went to the pillar to draw their attention. He was a smart man, and it seems as if he took the French to a nearby village that was under his control. Again, the Tamuka may have numbered 100,000, but they were broken up into many smaller chiefdoms of maybe 10 to 20 to as many as 35 villages each. They were not a united ethnic group. At the column or in the nearby village, Laudaner was showered with gifts, and he, in return, showered the natives with gifts. He understood the gift-giving culture, which hints that his previous interactions with natives were a little more involved than the uh, surviving sources uh, paint a picture of. And again, like I said, everything in this village, while it might seem ordinary to us today, because we have these histories, and if you're listening to this, you probably live on the North American continent, was utterly foreign, and I know I've said that before. But here's LaChalot, the carpenter, describing something. Let's see if you can guess what it is. They have an abundance Of a certain seed, which grows seven feet high. The stalk is thick, like a
1: cane. And the grain is as large as peas. The ear is a foot long,
0: the color of natural wax. Come on, that was a pretty good description. Considering the guy's never seen this stuff before and had no point of reference. What is he talking about? Three, two, one. He's talking about corn. He's talking about maize. Which to him may as well have been a crop cultivated on the moon. He had no... Easy way to describe this crop. He had to refer to peas and wax. Go figure. At this point, Laudanere and Satira begin trading metal objects. The Tamuka, of course, want manufactured metal objects, like axes, knives, things like that. Whereas the Tamuka had for the French raw ores. They had silver ingots. And now Laudanere, of course, is very interested in where this came from. And Satira said, well, there's lots of this. It's further to the west. And this is taken from the hills that are in possession of my enemies. And so if you make an alliance with me, we can go to war together and I'll get you tons of this stuff. Satira then took Laudaner by the hand and told him about gold. Gold that was in possession of all his enemies. He was the key to getting all the mineral wealth the French would ever want. If only Laudaner would agree to form an alliance with him. Here again we see an example of when the Native Americans are acting contrary to stereotypes about Native Americans. Satira and the Tamuka, they knew Europeans. The Spanish had been through a number of times. They were well aware of the advantages to European technology. They were well aware of what the Europeans desired and were willing to use all of these things to their advantage, whether they had to lie about it or not. In this case, the Temuco were not the helpless. In, In this case, the natives weren't the helpless and ignorant but noble people who were being taken advantage of. The French were the one who took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Laudaner agreed on the spot. Yes, we will form an alliance. The historian Francis Parkman writes of this event, Satira was delighted and declared that if he kept his word, he should have gold and silver to his heart's content. Ah, uh, it should be noted that in one of our existing accounts, they find two Spaniards living among Satira's people, probably castaways, runaways, who knows? And the Spaniards say, no, 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 no. This silver isn't coming from far away. This gold isn't coming from far away. Not to the west, not up in the hills, not in the mythical town of Appalachie. This is coming from Spanish shipwrecks off the coast that the natives pillaged through. The cracks in Satira's story are already starting to form. Sounds a lot like the tale of Jacques Cartier, doesn't it? The French decided that the spot to begin their colony should be further upstream along the St. John's. In far enough that they could hide from the Spaniards who might be trolling the coast looking for them. And this is where they began construction of Fort Caroline, named after... Charles IX, King of France. Caroline being a form of Charles, don't give me attitude, you know these things. The fort was constructed with relatively equal housing, except for Laudanere, who had the largest house of any other inhabitant, and he brought over his own maid. Of course, the rumors started to swirl right away that this maid was actually his mistress. However, there's no concrete evidence to ever suggest this. Laudanere seems to have been a devout Huguenot, Not too far into the construction of the fort, Satira decides to show up with a grand procession of men and women behind him to show his power. The artist Lemoyne writes, The king was accompanied by seven or eight hundred men,
1: handsome, strong, well-made, and active fellows, the best trained and swiftest of his force, all under arms, as if on a military expedition. Before him marched fifty youths with javelins or spears, and behind these... And next to himself were twenty pipers who produced a wild noise, without musical harmony or regularity, but only blowing away with all their might, each trying to be the loudest. Their instruments were nothing but a fixed sort of reeds or canes, with two openings, one at the top to blow into, and one at the other end for the wind to come out of, like organ pipes or whistles. On his right hand limped his soothsayer, and on his left hand his chief counselor,
0: Without which, two personages never proceeded, on any matter whatever. Among other observations Lemoyne makes of Satira is his many wives and people fanning him on hot days. Satira isn't some well-spoken Algonquian sachem, elected by the women in his village, or likewise by the Iroquois people to be a peace chief on the Great Council, or Grand Council rather, this far south, like I've said before, it seems like there is a larger power dynamic and more social distinction among native cultures. And Satira was a genuine chief or king of sorts. He belonged in a different class than everyone else. And you can hear it and see it in these descriptions. And the Europeans at first were very scared because, again, it appeared they were on the warpath. And no matter how many arms they have... They don't have the numbers that Satira has. And this fort isn't built yet. Not completely. And so at first the French recoiled until it became clear that this was more of a parade and less of a military invasion. Nonetheless, Satira wanted to impress the Europeans with this show of force, his large numbers, and his musicians. Laudanere invited him into the fort. and Laudanere decided that he would, in return, try to impress himself upon Satira. Lemoyne writes, Satira was
1: terribly frightened himself at the sound of the drums and the trumpets, and of the reports of the
0: brass cannon which were fired. Now it's clear from this French account that Satira, once in the fort and surrounded by the mechanations of the Europeans, realized he was outclassed. The instruments were louder, they would resonate with one another. There was more organization in terms of music theory. But then there were also the loud cannons, which he probably had never heard before. He probably heard them shoot off primitive guns, but a cannon would make quite an impression around him. He would notice the tools and the different types of structures the Europeans were attempting to build. He deduced that these people could be useful to him, as long as they stayed friendly. And so his people began to help build the fort. And after being so welcoming and rendering so much service onto the French, Satira says... I'm going on the war path against those people who have this silver and gold that you desire so much. We have made an alliance, and so you must go to war with me. Again, air didn't quite understand this part of native culture. If you're in an alliance with really any native group along the North American coast, the East Coast anyway, an alliance infers military support. It's not simply, I trade with you, you trade with me, I'm at peace with you, I'm at peace, you're at peace with me. There's also this requirement that you help in times of war. And Laudanere, not quite set up, not quite settled in, a little weary of Satira in his accounts, of what the outside world looks like in and around now French Florida, supposedly, says no. He says, uh, we're not ready for the war path just yet. You, uh, why don't you come back a couple months, maybe a year later from now? Who knows? But right now, we're really just trying to get ourselves settled in. Thank you but no thank you satira is not happy with this he doesn't try to hide his emotions here he is very disappointed he's very angry and the french not understanding what this alliance meant may have spoiled all of his plans and so for laudanere satira becomes now a potential problem another problem for laudanere were the nobles who were part of this expedition who came along we haven't talked too much about them yet Because they're not terribly useful. They have some money, some means. And a lot of these guys are going to be younger sons. These are guys who aren't going to inherit the titles. They're not going to get the estates. They're not going to get the money. And so while they're part of the noble class, their older siblings will basically get everything. So they're out to make it rich all on their own. These are the younger sons. It's a class of men who are entitled, literally entitled... They're not used to working with their hands. They see the work is below them. And Laudanere is making them participate in the construction of the fort. Do manual labor. And now for the first time in their lives, they're feeling inferior. Because even the basic worker who they scraped off the streets of Paris, let's say, uh, is more useful than they are. And what these young men want more than anything is to make for themselves a fortune and go back to France. They want to be there as little an amount of time as possible, they don't care about starting a colony. They're not particularly interested in the Huguenot cause as far as the New World is concerned. They want to make a fortune and return home. And just based on these early trades with the Native Americans while the Temuka are helping to build their fort, Lemoyne writes that all these French nobles doing these trades that they saw as one-sided to their benefit convinced themselves they were going to be loaded beyond their imagination. And so this group of nobles didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to waste any more of their time as they saw it, building this colony. They wanted to go off and find the sources of this gold and the silver. They were on this expedition for adventure. And that's what they wanted. And so even before any real scouting could be done, even before the fort was set up, crops could be planted, anything like that, this group of nobles were begging Laudanere, Hey, it's time to go. Let's allow me to go out into the world, this new world, this Florida and find my fortune. That's why I came along. Laudanere, of course, refuses. At this point, the French really don't know what's out there. And God forbid you send these spoiled rich kids out into the country to make first impressions on behalf of the entire French nation. Not going to happen. On this issue, Lemoyne, the artist writes, Laudanere,
1: who soon perceived that our men were acting avariously in their dealings, now forbade on pain of death, any trading or exchange with the Indians for gold, silver, or minerals, lest all such should be put into
0: the common stock
1: for the benefit of all.
0: And as angry as this made the nobles, what made them angrier is that Laudaner made an exception for one guy named Pierre Gambi, who was an associate of Gaspard de Caligny, the great leader of this entire operation and patron back in France, the admiral himself. Pierre Gambie may have actually been in the noble house of Coligny, And he was given free reign to not only trade with the natives, but he could travel about. He could leave the fort. He could leave Laudanere's domain completely and do what he wished. And this is where the accounts go into a digression about Pierre Gambie, which is unrelated to what the rest of the French are doing, because he's off on his own, but should serve as a warning. Gambie went off. And he found a tribe living all alone on an island of their own in the middle of the St. John's River. Between his force of personality and the goods that he had, he managed to impress the chief so much that he gave him one of his daughters. And soon Gamby became the chief's son-in-law. In this familial but also political position, he began to run things around the village, requiring the men in the village, to go and obtain things for him in exchange for the few metal bits he had and the authority that he could wield over them. The chief, under the spell of Gamby, gave up more and more power to him until he was a tyrant on an island of his own. Once he had been there for about a year, he told everyone that he was going back to the French. He was going to find Fort Caroline again and reconnect with his old friends. A few young men decided to go with him as security. For his journey back to Fort Caroline. And of course late at night. When Gamby was bending over a fire. Tending to it. A native split his head in half with an axe. And then the men took his stuff. And left his body on the fire. Putting that digression aside. Laudaner didn't spend much time. Encouraging the colonists to farm. They planted some things. But not nearly enough to sustain. The numbers that they had. He assumed that there would be constant resupply from France, which would probably be not the smartest thing to assume considering what happened to the last French expedition. The security of the seas at this time and the wars between the empires would seem to indicate that supply might not come and maybe you should spend some time planting food. But also, here we are in August of 1564, the natives were supplying corn. They were bringing gifts As the different villages under Satira's command introduced themselves to the French, they would provide them with food, a welcoming gift. The French assumed for some reason that those gifts would just keep rolling in. However, as we just learned, Laudanere did not hold up his end of this alliance, whether he understood it or not. And so he should be under no expectation that the corn would keep coming. The welcoming is over, the obligations were not met, and so the shunning begins. Furthermore, in one of Satira's villages, there was a great storm at night, and the cornfields caught on fire. Some 500 acres or so burned to the ground, destroyed. And the Tamuka blamed the French. They blamed their firearms, a technology they didn't quite understand yet, but they knew that the French could command fire at will whenever they wanted. And so the natives blamed this thing that they didn't quite understand. But of course the French didn't set fire to their cornfields. But the truth doesn't always matter in cases like this. And so I hope you can see now the divide that is growing between these two people that are supposedly allied with one another. Satira and his people decided to go to war with or without the French. However, Satira invited the French to observe his parting ceremonies, his preparations for war. And we get an account of this from Lemoyne the artist.
1: Lemoyne writes, He assembled his men, decorated after the Indian manner with feathers and other things, in a level place. The soldiers of Loudonair being present, and the force sat down in a circle, the chief being in the middle. A fire was then lighted on his left, and two great vessels full of water were set on his right. Then the chief after rolling his eyes as if excited by anger, uttering some sounds deep down in his throat and making various gestures, all at once raised a horrid yell. And all his soldiers repeated this yell, striking their hips and rattling their weapons. Then the chief, taking a wooden platter of water, turned towards the sun and worshipped it, praying to it for a victory over the enemy. And that, as he should now scatter the water that he had dipped into a wooden platter, so might their blood be poured out. Then he flung the water with a great cast up into the air, and as it fell down upon his men, he added, As I have done with this water, so I
0: pray that you may do with the blood of your enemies. The famed historian Francis Parkman, gathering the different first-hand accounts, came up with his own picture of this ceremony. Francis Parkman says, A fire was kindled near the bank of the river,
1: and two large vessels of water were placed beside it. Here... Saturina took his stand, while his chiefs crouched in the grass around him, and the savage visages of five hundred warriors filled the outer circle, their long hair garnished with feathers and covered with the heads and skins of wolves, cougars, bears, and eagles. Saturina, looking towards the country of his enemy, distorted his features into a wild expression of rage and hate, then muttered to himself,
0: then hoveled, an invocation to his god, the sun, then sprinkled the assembly with water from one of the vessels, and then turning upon the fire, suddenly quenched it. So he cried, may the blood of our enemies be poured out, and their lives extinguished. Satira intended to go to war with one of his neighbors further inland, a chief by the name of Utena, who maybe had more villages under his control than Satira himself. But unknown to Satira, the French already sent some of their own men to meet this Utena, Laudaner sent out Lieutenant Otigny to discover the truth of these rumors of gold and silver upriver further inland to the west. And the last the French have heard of the lieutenant, he found some natives who didn't have gold or silver, but knew people to the west that did. And so he left with them and hadn't been heard from since. Weeks went by. Obviously concerned, Laudaner sent out a sergeant and a captain to find the lieutenant. And when they did find him, he was living in a native village, and he had five or six pounds of silver on him, and seemed in no hurry to be going anywhere. At this point, all the existing primary sources seem to ignore the fact that this lieutenant was clearly out for his self-interest, and instead focuses on the fact that this lieutenant found himself in one of the villages under the control of Utena, the chief they were seeking out. Utena claiming to have 40 villages under his command, and from the French perspective, believed to have lived closer to the sources of gold and silver, these Frenchmen decided to make an alliance with him. Which brings us back to Fort Caroline and Laudanere. Because Laudanere made an alliance with Satira. And then a couple of his underlings made an alliance with Utena. And Satira and Utena were bitter enemies. Laudanere, having no experience with managing two contradicting positions like this, could only stall requests from allies and deny things and lie to keep up the ruse. But in reality, both alliances seem to have canceled each other out. And in fact, to make any of these alliances valid at this point, the French would really have to show up with force to support one side or the other. The artist Lemoyne notes that one of Laudanier's weaknesses is his lack of conviction and willingness to let his underlings decide things and have a say in things. Which today we would see as a good leader. Someone who listens to those that they lead. But at this time, and in this moment, you need a smart leader who can make singular decisions very quickly. And Laudaner is not that guy. And his hand would be forced by the actions of the natives themselves. So Satira went to war with Utina. Or Utina. I'm going to pronounce all these names wrong. You're going to have to accept that. So Satira went to war with him. Raided one of his villages killed a whole bunch, scalped and dismembered a bunch of people, and took 24 captives, bringing them back to parade in front of the French and, of course, their own people. The French observed these trophies of war, which, of course, were the captives, but also dismembered heads, scalps, arms, and legs. These were literal trophies of victory. And this tradition of trading these trophies back and forth among allies uh, is found all the way up and down the eastern seaboard of North America. It's a very common native thing to do at the time. This all takes place in late August of 1564. So things are escalating quickly here. So Laudonair says to Satira, could I have a couple of your captives? We're in an alliance with one another. I would like a couple of your captives. Now, this wouldn't be an absurd request if they were genuine allies. Like I said, things move around. Things are traded as gifts. Even people can be a gift. Satira refused. And he said, when you didn't want to go to war with me, our alliance was over. And Satira had reason to be suspicious. Laudanere planned to take those captives of Utena and return them back to him, confirming their alliance and confirming that Laudanere was indeed going to choose Utena rather than Satira to be his ally, Utena being probably slightly more powerful and, again, closer to the mineral wealth. At this point, again, Laudanere's hand is forced Because now he understands that native alliances depend on military support. He gets this now. So Laudaner takes 20 of his strongest men, armed with guns. They go to Satira's own village, the main village. They go into his own house, and Laudaner sits in his chair. The Tamuka had rounded structures. Not like a wigwam, wikiup, or igloo. More like a cone shape for the walls and the structure itself with a thatched roof on top. And Satira's dwelling was, of course, at the center of the village and larger than everyone else's. And his chair was a, a throne of sorts. So Laudaner sitting in his chair isn't just a guy sitting in a chair. It's a man assuming the power that the chair is associated with. And this led to a tense standoff where you have 20 armed European men with guns versus thousands of natives without guns. Now this right here could be the end of our tale of French Florida, but it was not. While the old men had their standoff, it was one of Satira's sons who said, Hey, I got a couple of these captives myself. These are my captives. I can do with what I please. I'm going to give them to the French. And it was Satira's son who diffused the situation and handed over a couple of Utuna's men to the French. And while there was no bloodshed, this tense moment was pivotal to the French at Fort Caroline. They were declaring that the alliance with Satira was dead, obviously. And that they were now confirming their alliance with Utina. By early September, the French decided to take these captives to Utina. And we have a little more detail about this second trip to the Utina chiefdom than we do about the first, because the artist Lemoyne went along with the expedition, leaving us today's written account and the images he made. One thing he noted, which has become relevant in recent times, is that he saw Native men dressed as Native women, from his point of view anyway. And he viewed them as being intersex. Now, the author Miles Harvey, who wrote about Le Moyne, uh, uh, claims that these are two-spirit people, which a lot of Native cultures had. These would be today equivalent to non-binary people or transgender people. It's really hard to fish out, because we use this term two-spirit when we talk about this Native American uh, gender, but in reality, each tribe in each area we find this, it might have been different rules, different scenarios, different setups, just like people today are all different. And so Lemoyne observed this group of men, born male, who were very big and very strong, and yet seemed to be dressed like the women in the village. Now others have said, well, these could be captives that are being used for the usefulness of their strong bodies. And they're being shamed by being dressed as women. Remember, this is a primitive time all around the world. And a man could be easily insulted by being uh, compared to a woman. Just how it was. But now, if you're going online and looking at people arguing over things, which seems to be an occupation we all do, you'll often see uh, somebody say, Hey, transgender people, that's not natural. And then another person will say, Oh, the Native Americans had transgender people. They called them two-spirit people. Well, yeah, some tribes did have this two-spirit tradition. A lot of them didn't, so it's a mixed bag. Again, history isn't clean. History isn't simple. It's very complicated. It doesn't care about your feelings now. And for all we know, Lemoyne could have been completely wrong on this point. He was one observer who was an artist from Europe, and this is a debate that I'm not going to dip my toe in because we simply don't have enough sources from Lemoyne himself or the men around him to really know what the Temuka were doing at this time. Especially concerning dress. Who knows? Maybe some men just wore clothes like that. There might not have been a big difference between male and female clothing in the 16th century. Whereas it might have became uh, more distinct later on. Again, I'm done. I'm done ranting. But Le Moyne did uh, observe a couple other things that were a little more easy to interpret. He saw a firstborn child sacrifice. So they were sacrificing uh, babies. Probably to elicit... The goodwill of a spirit. He also witnessed women grieving the death of their husbands in wartime. He writes After coming to the graves of their husbands,
1: they cut off their hair below the ears and scatter it upon the graves, and then cast upon them the weapons and drinking shells of the deceased as memorials of the brave men. This done, they return home, but are not allowed to marry again until their hair has grown long enough to cover their shoulders. They let their nails grow long on both fingers and toes. Cutting the former away, however, at the sides, so as to leave them very sharp, the men especially. And when they take one as an enemy, they ink their nails deep in his forehead and tear the skin so as to wound and
0: blind him. What he is describing is the revenge widows would take on captives from enemy tribes. This sounds very similar to the widows we heard about among the Innu opening up this season we were when we were talking about the natives along the St. Lawrence. Often the female natives on the eastern seaboard of North America were the worst torturers of captives among these native tribes. And even today, let's not judge, even today, if you're an old chunk of coal like me, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. It seems to me that Le Moyne and the other Frenchmen showed up around the time that Utina was preparing for a war party himself. Just based on the ceremonies, the things he sees, the images he left behind, it seems like they were going through the motions of assembling a war party, celebrating the war party, and leaving. Utuna, surprised by the return of their captives, reaffirmed their alliance. And he said, you guys should go to war with me. And this time, the party of Frenchmen did. But the enemy wasn't Satira. There was a chief further to his west, even closer to the mineral wealth in theory, named Patano. And Utena wanted to war against Patano. Now, this worked out well for the French. They could go on this expedition, make it further west, reaffirm their relationship with Utena, and then not piss off Satira, who again is going to have his territory surrounding Fort Caroline. So if they're not in alliance with each other, well, at least they could be uh, friendly neighbors. And this arrangement, again, was made by Laudonnière's underlings. Laudonnière's back at the fort. He's not part of this. And so we can't credit him with the decisiveness involved in this decision. The combined force marched west, sneaking into Patano's land. They're banking on the element of surprise. And most early accounts of Native American warfare depend on this. Often in these early records, if a Native American war party can't rely on the element of surprise, they go back home. Because a war party is only one portion of your nation invading another nation. If that other nation has time to rally all that they can, they will outnumber you, surely. Unfortunately, the party is spotted by Patano's men. and Utuna's shaman warns him that we should go no further. It's inadvisable. It's foolish. We must return home. The attack must be called off. Utuna takes his advice and begins to turn his men around to return back to his territory. But the French, the French say, You coward. They shame him. They shame the chief in front of his own men, and say, You're a coward. Who cares if we're spotted? Don't you see the weapons we have? The element of surprise? Just our general appearance. These people have never seen anything like us before. We're going to win this. Let's go. And then Utena was actually persuaded to follow the French, instead of his own shaman's advice. And they went further into Patano's territory. Patano himself being fully aware what was coming down upon him. Now, at this point, you might think the French are being mean and manipulative. But, remember, the entire reason the French are on this expedition is Utuna said, Hey, you know what? I'd love to help you get that gold and silver. I just happen to have my one of my biggest enemies in the way of that. So you, you help me out with that, I'll help you out with this. So, each side is manipulating one another. Utina and the French encountered the First Force at the first of Patano's villages. A three-hour battle ensued. But almost immediately, the French took out their weapons, their guns, and shot the chief of the village, killing him instantly. So while Patano's forces outnumbered Utena, the psychological advantage of this advanced weapon and these strange-looking people eventually won out, and Utena's forces were victorious. The French pleaded Utena to press forward, head further west, follow up their victory with another victory. Utena urged caution, and this time he won out and both parties retired. But before returning home, Lemoyne observed Utena's men going through their rituals that the Temuka did when they achieved a victory. They scoured the fields and cut off the arms and legs of Patano's dead men, and then as a final insult, would jam an arrow into the ass of the limbless dead warrior. Well, anywho, let's get back to what's going on at Fort Caroline. In September, the second wave of colonists arrived from France. They come with supplies, they brought women and children, they also brought criminals. Remember, sometimes they couldn't get bodies to go on these risky endeavors, and they'd actually have to recruit from the prisons. And just to fill out their crew even more, on the way over, the French ships actually uh, endeavored into some pirating, and the people they captured on those ships were now part of French Florida. With them was the first reform minister, or the first minister period, In the colony. And services would be held daily. But remember, beside the pious Huguenots who make up Fort Caroline, there's all these other people now. And right from the get-go, these people coming over from France, willingly or not, and the native women start to have relations with one another. It's human nature. It's what happens. There's nothing you could do about it. Nature abhors a vacuum. And people want nothing more than to fill that vacuum some of the ships would be sent back with correspondence. Some of that correspondence would be very critical of Laudanere, which will become important later on in our story. Laudanere also sent back the obvious dissidents who had made trouble for him and told his superiors, well, Gaspar de Coligny specifically, that things were going great and he should send 500 more colonists and tons of supplies, everything's working out. In the same month of September, 1564, French pirates visit Fort Caroline, no doubt from their escapades down in the Caribbean against Spanish possessions and Spanish ships. And while they were a welcome surprise to the fort, and Laudanere, of course, enjoyed their company, they started, they planted a seed, a seed that would cause the bleeding of Fort Caroline. Remember the discontented masses of men who wanted gold and silver. Well, after the French pirates came and they left... Many of these men realize, hey, let's not wait to go west and split up the money with everybody else. Let's steal some boats, and then we can go pirating all our own in places that have already been mapped out for us. The Spanish New World. And so before very long, there's varying reports, but one says 11 sailors came together, stole a ship, left Fort Caroline. Another incident, right around the same time, two carpenters stole a ship left to do the same kind of dirty business. And between all the ships that would end up being stolen by various small groups of deserters, and then the ships he sent back himself with correspondence and orders and whatnot, Laudanere found himself lacking the necessary number of ships to keep this operation going. So now the men had to start building ships. Now we ran into this problem last time when we were talking about, what did we call it? Charles Fort in 1562 the, tub, the subject of our last episode. Now they didn't have any shipbuilders then so their ship was a, uh, a hunk of junk but this time we have a larger colony and we have some shipbuilders among the colonists. But this was one more duty that, the, that ate up the time of the people at Fort Caroline that could have been spent growing or finding, trading for, fishing hunting food getting food. The natives took notice of their lack of food and ability to obtain food. And so the cost of obtaining food from them went higher and higher. The natives understood economics well. Uh, This is again another common misconception that Native Americans were somehow ignorant of value. They weren't. They saw that the French desperately needed food, and so the price of food went through the roof. As the French had eaten up their initial gifts from the making of alliances and the the greeting of one another, and began trading away everything just to obtain food. But if it weren't for the natives, they would have all starved to death. And that's not just my opinion. The artist Lemoyne says it himself. He says, As for provisions, which
1: it had been hoped would be abundant in this new world, none at all were found. And unless the natives had furnished us from their own stores, from day to day, some of us must assuredly have perished from starvation. Especially, such as we did not know how to use
0: firearms in hunting. Now, we always assume that men in the past knew how to hunt. Well, owning a gun doesn't mean you know how to hunt, especially when it came to European men who may have lived in cities and then joined the army and were trained on how to use guns. Well, they often learned how to shoot in a volley with a group of other people. In this case, they just had to know how to shoot at the same time or relatively at the same time as the other people in their group. And in the same general direction. This would create a deadly wall of lead. But hunting is a precision sport. And one missed shot is enough noise to scare away everything you wanted to eat. And just like at Charles Fort, as the hunger began to set in. And rations were laid out. Tempers flared. People began to look at Laudanere. Especially that noble class. They saw him as the problem. The thing that was in the way. The guy that had to go. One conspiracy that was well underway was to simply blow up Laudanere in his house while he slept with a crudely devised explosive device. And the plan nearly happened, but one nobleman snitched and told Laudanere what the plan was, save Laudanere's life. And he said, I'll give you up, I'll give up all the conspirators on condition that the next ship that comes here, I'm on that ship going back to France. Laudanere was fairly lenient when he found out who everyone involved in this plot were. And he took the leader of it, a young nobleman, and he banished him from Fort Caroline. He said, go live with the natives, assuming they would take him in. But his leniency, and only cutting off the head of this conspiracy, just sprouted another conspiracy. And in December of 1564, a nobleman by the name of Furneau led 66 mutineers into Laudonair's cabin in the middle of the night, and they put a saber straight to his throat. At the same time, they rounded up all of Laudaner's supporters and tied them up. Lemoyne writes of this incident, At midnight, Forno, the chief of the conspirators,
1: armed with a sword, carrying his gun in hand, and having twenty gunmen along with him, went to Laudaner's house, which he commanded to be opened, and going straight to the bedside, put his weapon to his throat, and assailing him with the vilest insults seized the keys of the armory in the storehouse, took away all his weapons, and having put fetters on his feet, ordered him to be confined as prisoner on the ship which lay in the river opposite the fort, under a guard of two soldiers.
0: The ship that Laudaner ordered built was now his prison. Once confined, these rebels demanded that Laudaner produce for them papers, allowing them, on behalf of the French crown, to privateer in the Caribbean Laudanere refused he said this wasn't going to happen this is not what Fort Caroline is going to be about and then Forno of course put his sword right up against his neck and he says I'm going to cut your throat if you don't make out some paperwork and Laudanere tied up, helpless everyone not involved in the mutiny fled into the woods had no choice he made up some paperwork handed it over to the mutineers, and then the mutineers took their one ship. The ship Laudanere just had built, the ship they imprisoned him in, they took it. The fledgling colony was now without a ship. They were down 66 men. Loudon air was just made to look weak. Oh, things have taken a dark turn. For this part, we turn to Loudon air. who writes
1: of these rebels. They set sail from Carolina on the 8th of December calling us cowards and green hands, and threatening that if on their return from New Spain, with the wealth they propose to acquire, we shall refuse to admit
0: them into the fort,
1: they would tread us underfoot.
0: The 66 mutineers eventually found their way to the Caribbean, and they stole several ships, broke up into several small parties. But at the end of the day, the Spanish got the better of them. The authorities caught up to them eventually, and many were executed, Many were imprisoned. Many were made to do forced labor. And basically all of them were snitching, were squealing, were saying, oh yeah, we came from this fort. It's in what you call Spanish Florida. So now the Spanish authorities were certain of the existence of a French fort. Fort Caroline has been outed. And from the Spanish perspective, it was a den of pirates. And of these 66, a small few managed to limp back to Fort Caroline after being gone for many months, after being initially successful pirates, and then having to flee for their lives from the Spanish. The men at Fort Caroline working along the riverbanks welcomed them back, brought them into the fort, and then, depending on the account, Laudonair either killed some of them or every single one of them. But let's return to the main story of Fort Caroline. We're now moving up to January Of the year 1565. And again, we return to the major problem occurring at the colony. Nobody brought over farmers, nobody planted food. And now we're reaching the time of year where the Temuka would take up seasonal hunting and they would go off to hunting camps. They would seemingly disappear into the woods from the European perspective. And now, even the few natives who were still trading with the Europeans all but disappeared. There was no way to get food now. And their hunting season would last typically the rest of winter. And so you're talking April, maybe late March, before you're really going to see the Tamukin chiefdoms come back together. And so the rations are running out. All the same pressures that existed before are still there. The only relief valve is that people mutiny sometimes, and they leave. And then there's less people to feed, and there's less anger overall. But the problems resurge. Moving into February of 1565, another group of mutineers steal some ships, and they leave. They go off to the Caribbean. Same deal. They capture a ship with some very important Spanish officials, New World Spanish officials. They end up killing a Spanish judge. And when, of course, this group was captured, it is recorded in the Spanish sources that they told the Spanish exactly where the River of May was, which is what they call the St. John's, which is exactly the river that Fort Caroline was on. And so entering into March of 1565, we see more mutineers coming back, more mutineers being executed, morale at Fort Caroline at an all-time low. Now, put yourselves in the shoes of a young colonist, let's say, at Fort Caroline. You're not finding any gold to the west of you, no silver. You're not making any progress with the native chiefdoms. In fact, you can't even really communicate with any of them at this point they're off hunting and if you mutiny against loud well as you've seen you're going to get caught by the spanish if you manage to limp back well then the french are going to kill you there's been no communication from home no resupply the feeling of helplessness the feeling of being trapped must must have been overwhelming only to be overtaken by just the raw gut hunger that you must have at this point And as winter slowly fades away, the southeast of the uh, North American coast gets awfully hot, awfully humid. And so while we heard about all these descriptions of, ooh, this new place, French Florida, how beautiful when they landed the clear water and all the things growing on all the trees and the friendly natives, suddenly here we are less than a year later and everything is the same and yet different. They're seeing the other side of what they thought was going to be paradise. Laudaner had about a hundred chickens in the fort, and he wouldn't allow any of them to be killed for their meat. The colonists resented this, especially since they were reduced to foraging in the woods among plants they had no familiarity with, just eating things at random, seeing if it would kill them or not, and hunting alligators with sticks. Now, I'm not a hunter myself, but I wouldn't hunt anything that could also hunt you back. But now we're coming up on the spring. And Chief Utina is back, or Utina. He's the guy that Laudonniere successfully navigated an alliance with. So help should be coming from this guy. And Utina provides some food, less and less over time. And by spring of 1565, Utina says to the French, he tells Laudonniere, I have no more food for you, but I have villages that are in rebellion against me. One village in particular is full of food. You invade that village for me, retake command of it. Hand it over to me, and you'll get all their food. The French, out of desperation, say, yes, great idea. They raise their forces, they pick up their guns, they organize themselves, and they successfully massacre this village for Utina, the Tamukan chief, only to find that this village had no food stores. They themselves were starving. They had been tricked by Utina into taking over this territory on his behalf with no reward. Utina gave them a, a small, piddly amount of food as compensation and sent the French away. Laudonaire was incensed by this, and the man was starving himself. On rations since at least December. Laudonaire and his men seized Otina, and as a hostage of the French, he was marched to all of his subordinate villages. The French demanded food in return for their chief. Ah, but the natives were up to something. They negotiated with the French and they said, okay, well, we all have different food stores and you're all over the place. How about you go back to the chief's village and you wait there and we'll come and bring you food to the one location. And this way we'll be present and we'll know our chief is safe because we'll see him being released. The French out of pure desperation, having no time to really think this through, agree to it. And slowly, believe it or not, the natives start showing up with corn. Piles and piles of corn. Natives are coming from perhaps 30 different villages, creating a gigantic heap for the French soldiers. And while Utina is being held hostage, Satira shows up, his enemy. And Satira offers a load of food himself, saying, If you hand over Utina to me, you can have all of this. The French refuse, which just about takes Satira out of this story until much later on, and he's going to be important to this story, so please keep him in mind. But what ultimately amounted to maybe two dozen Frenchmen with guns were getting more and more nervous. You see, in Utena's village, natives from, again, many other villages were gathering. Not only were they bringing corn, but they were just hanging around. And now 20 or 24 Frenchmen, even with guns, were beginning to become quite, quite frightened of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young native braves. The native plan, of course, was to provide so much food to the French that the French would have a hard time carrying it. They would be overburdened. And a man carrying, I don't know, 150 pounds of corn is pretty easy to attack, especially when you have overwhelming numerical superiority. And so when the French were satisfied, They loaded themselves up on corn, each one carrying as much as they possibly could because they were starving and they wanted to return as heroes and provide for their loved ones and their friends. And of course, as they're marching down the trail, the natives descend with a volley of arrows and then they rush them. The French, in a panic, throw down the food and run in all sorts of directions. They scatter. The fighting goes on for hours between individuals. All in all, 22 of the Frenchmen are injured, two are killed, and nobody got any food. The relationship with Satira's people ruined, Utina's people ruined, Laudaner no longer cared for diplomacy. Back at Fort Caroline, with nothing left to eat, he sent out organized detachments of men to raid villages, native villages, and just outright take their food. No negotiations, no trades. One village in particular that Laudaner was out for was the one that our character Pierre Gamby went to earlier on in this episode. The one man allowed to trade with the natives on his own. The uh, tribe that lived on the island that he took over and then was killed outright for being a tyrant. Laudaner had heard from other natives the whole tale. And when they found that island, they slaughtered everyone they could and took everything they could. May was the actual month that that large group of conspirators, the few survivors, trickled back in. This is when they would be executed, and their bodies would be hung as an example to everybody else. Laudanere at this point has his gloves off, but perhaps fortunate to everyone in French Florida at the time, Laudanere's men dwindled by mutinies and starving to death grew to be a very weak force. Laudanere no longer being able to go off on these expeditions. It seems that Fort Caroline Right about the beginning of summer of 1565 was entering a death spiral. There are reports of uh, colonists eating the fetuses of pregnant uh, dogs. Again, hunting alligators and also snakes to eat. Laudanere reports that people even resorted to grinding up the bones of dead, picked over carcasses to try to make some sort of bread out of it. The artist Lemoyne describes the scene of the hunger as...
1: Some of us had actually perished of hunger, and all the rest were starved until our skin cleaved to our bones. air at last, gave up hopes of receiving reinforcements from France.
0: But just as hope was lost, a ship was spotted on the horizon, out at the mouth of the river, off the coast. If it would be a French flag, well, that'd be good news. It'd be their, their salvation. If it would be a Spanish flag, it could mean the end of everyone. But this time they notice it happens to be an English flag. It ended up being a merchant, soon to be pirate, by the name of John Hawkins. A man who many credit with introducing both tobacco and slavery to the English. To the French at this time, he was a welcome sight. What Hawkins saw was horrifying. He gave the French as much food as he could. He noticed that Laudanere had finally relented and was building vessels to get everyone, everyone, the whole colony, back to France. But the vessels looked terrible. Maybe not as bad as the vessels in our first episode, but Hawkins didn't want to see the French people try to make their way back over across the ocean in these rickety little things. Laudonaire, who would consider himself indebted to Hawkins for the rest of his life, didn't want to accept any more gifts from him. He had fed his people, saved the lives of his people, and so in return for one of Hawkins' ships, he gave them a large number of guns and cannon, which the colony would not need anymore because the whole thing would be dissolving. Now there are some who believe that the Spanish actually sent John Hawkins there to tempt the French into abandoning their colony. And if they did, it seems to have worked. And so Laudanere, with some ships and a sudden burst of new provisions, knew it was time. If he waited any longer, the same problems would arise again. And all they had to do was wait for favorable winds. And if fate was in Laudanere's favor, this would be the end of Fort Caroline right here. But it wasn't. As they waited along the coast for the winds to come in, more ships were spotted on the horizon. Who was it this time? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Tune in to the next episode on the epic tale of French Florida. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.